1 Kings chapter 22, we begin in verse 1. And they continued three years without war between Syria and Israel. And it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said unto his servants, Know ye that Ramoth in Gilead is ours, and we be still, and take it not out of the hand of the king of Syria? You may recall from earlier in the narrative and earlier chapters that the king of Syria had made an agreement to restore to uh, Ahab that which had been taken from him by his fathers. Uh, evidently, there was some reneging on that deal on the part of the king of Syria. So we continue in verse 4. And he, Ahab, said unto Jehoshaphat, Wilt thou go with me to the battle to Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as thou art, my people as thy people, my horses as thy horses. And Jehoshaphat said unto the king of Israel, Inquire, I pray thee, at the word of the Lord today. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about four hundred men, and said unto them, Shall I go against Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? And they said, Go up, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord besides, that we might inquire of him? And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord. But I hate him, for he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, Hasten hither, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, and the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, sat each on his throne, having put on their robes in a void place in the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets prophesied before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chenaanah, made him horns of iron and said, Thus saith the Lord, With thee shalt thou push the Syrians until thou have consumed them. And all the prophets prophesied so, saying, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it into the king's hand. And the messenger that was gone to call Micaiah spake unto him, saying, Behold now, the words of the prophets declare good unto the king with one mouth. Let thy word, I pray thee, be like the word of one of them, and speak that which is good. And Micaiah said, As the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. So we came to the king, and the king said unto him, Micaiah, shall we go against Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall we forbear? And he answered him, Go and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. And the king said unto him, how many times shall I adjure thee that thou tell me nothing but that which is true in the name of the Lord? Now let me pause here long enough just to say 
that um, one of the challenges we face when we're reading historical narrative is we're not always able to pick up the tone of that which is spoken. But certainly based on what the king has said to Micaiah, you get the impression that when Micaiah said, go and prosper, let the, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king, that he must have been speaking with such obvious sarcasm that uh, Ahab was able to pick up on it. Okay, verse 17, Micaiah now speaking again. And he said, I saw all Israel scattered upon the hills as sheep that have not a shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let them return every man to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell thee that he would prophesy no good concerning me, but evil? And he said, Hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said on this manner, and another said on that manner. And there came forth a spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? And he said, I will go forth, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, Thou shalt persuade him, and prevail also. Go forth and do so. I might pause here just long enough to add, too, that the Lord is not the author of sin. The Lord is not the one who ordains or approves even of lying. But we see in this instance that he can nevertheless utilize it to his own ends, to his own purposes. He is Lord over all. Verse 23, Now therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these thy prophets, and the Lord hath spoken evil concerning thee. But Zedekiah, the son of Chenaanah, went near and smote Micaiah on the cheek and said, Which way went the spirit of the Lord from me to speak unto thee? And Micaiah said, Behold, thou shalt see in that day when thou shalt go into an inner chamber to hide thyself. And the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and carry him back unto Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus saith the king, Put this fellow in the prison and feed him with bread of affliction and with water of affliction until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, if thou return at all in peace, the Lord hath not spoken by me. And he said, Hearken, O people, every one of you. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 28. And we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention in particular to the very last thing that we have recorded by this prophet Micaiah. Notice what it says at the end of verse 28. Hearken, O people, every one of you. Hearken, O people, every one of you. The prophet Micaiah presents to us 
further evidence that the influence of Elijah and Elisha was having an impact on the nation of Israel. Here is a prophet that stands out in much a similar fashion as Elijah to boldly proclaim the word of the Lord. It's been suggested by at least one commentator that Micaiah that is named in this chapter may have been the unnamed prophet that in the previous chapter denounced King Ahab for his failure on that occasion to utterly conquer the Syrians when the Lord delivered him into their hands. And for his message of doom to Ahab for his failure, it may very well be that Ahab had the prophet arrested and committed to prison. I say this because once Micaiah predicts the failure of Ahab's military venture to recapture Ramoth and Gilead, we read in verse 26 of the chapter, Ahab's charge to his servants to take Micaiah and carry him back unto Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus saith the king, Put this fellow in the prison, and feed him with the bread of affliction, and with the water of affliction, until I come in peace. It appears, doesn't it, that Micaiah was taken from the prison when he was summoned to appear before Ahab, and that he was sent back to the prison following his message of defeat to King Ahab. Now it's interesting to note the dialogue that takes place first between Micaiah and the messenger that was sent to call him. To that messenger, Micaiah states that he will be faithful to proclaim the Lord's word to him despite what everybody else is saying, what all the other prophets are proclaiming. Then Micaiah addresses the king, Ahab, directly when he says to him in verse 19, Hear thou, therefore, the word of the Lord. Next he addresses one of Ahab's more enthusiastic prophets, a man by the name of Zedekiah, the son of Chenaanah, who in his enthusiasm for the king's military venture, we read in verse 11, he made him horns of iron, and he said, Thus saith the Lord, with these thou shalt push the Syrians until thou hast consumed him, or them, rather. Uh, my, what an enthusiastic message, complete with illustration by this enthusiastic prophet. He must have been in the charismatic branch, I suppose, of those prophets gathered around the king on that occasion. And it seems that this enthusiastic prophet was especially put out with Micaiah's message, so he comes and he smites Micaiah on the cheek, and he challenges him in verse 24, which way went the Spirit of the Lord from me to speak unto thee? To which Micaiah answers him directly, Behold, thou shalt see in that day when thou shalt go into an inner chamber to hide thyself. We don't have the actual record of what happened to Zedekiah as a result of that announcement from Micaiah, but I'm sure it's safe to assume that Zedekiah met his end in accordance with what Micaiah said to him. 
Now, the thing I want you to see in this summary analysis of the narrative is that up to this point in the narration, Micaiah is speaking very directly to individuals, directly and singly. He speaks to the messenger that was sent to summon him. Then he speaks directly to King Ahab. After that, he speaks directly to Zedekiah, the son of Chenaanah. After that, he directly addresses Ahab again by telling him that if he returns safely to Samaria, then Ahab could be sure that the Lord had not spoken by the prophet Micaiah. And immediately following that word to Ahab, we then have for the very first time in the narrative, Micaiah turning his attention to the crowd, so to speak, to everyone that was on hand to witness all that had transpired. And to them, he says, hearken, O people, in verse 28, every one of you. For the very first time in all his interactions, now he's preaching to the crowd. And when I see the broad exhortation that amounts to the final word that we hear from this prophet, it occurs to me that this is a word that applies not only to Ahab, not only to the prophets he surrounded himself with, it's not only a word to King Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, who was on hand to see and hear what transpired. And I just have to pause here to say that Jehoshaphat strikes me as the most perplexing character in all of this. What must that king have been thinking? Why would he continue in his alliance with Ahab after what he had just witnessed and heard? Well, the Lord only knows. But with Micaiah's word, it was not only a warning to him and to that crowd that evidently was on hand, but Micaiah's exhortation addressed to all the people, every one of you, inspired and preserved by God in Holy Scripture, comes down the corridors of time right up to this present hour, and it speaks to us this morning. So this is what I want to focus on this morning this exhortation, this broad exhortation addressed to everyone by the prophet Micaiah. Hearken, O people, every one of you. The word hearken is a word that means literally listen. Listen to me, everybody. Hear what I'm about to say to you, the prophet says. Another version renders it, mark my words. You could interpret it, I suppose, to mean pay special attention. And the question I want to raise and then answer this morning is simply this. What is the message that we're to hearken to today based on this exhortation? The events of this chapter took place thousands of years ago, but what are we to draw out of that passage that we can hearken to, so to speak, today. Well, consider with me, first of all, we're to hearken to the reality of false prophets. We're to hearken to the reality 
of false prophets. You notice anything different before Ahab now in chapter 22 of 1 Kings? Things have changed somewhat. These prophets, 400 of them, that are gathered together in the presence of King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat, these are now obviously not the prophets of Baal. Look at the words of verse 6. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said unto them, Shall I go against uh, Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall, uh, or shall I forbear? And they said, Go up, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. No mention of Baal here, is there? Underscore that phrase, the Lord, the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. Now, you'll notice, if you look carefully at the verse, that the word Lord in that verse does not appear in all capital letters. It is not, therefore, the name Jehovah that's being pronounced there. It's the generic word Lord, which could be applied to any number of deities and is at times even applied to men as a show of respect. It's a little bit like saying sir in modern English. But now jump down to verse 11, where we read of that enthusiastic prophet I mentioned earlier. It's Zenekiah, the son of Chenaanah. He's the one that added the iron horns to his prophesying, but notice now the name of the deity that he's referencing. And Zedekiah, the son of Chenaanah, made him horns of iron, and he said, Thus saith the Lord, underscore the word there. You will notice now in this instance that uh, the word Lord is in all capital letters. With these shalt thou push the Syrians until thou have consumed them. And again, note the word LORD in all capital letters. This now is the name Jehovah. And now look at verse 12, where all the rest of the prophets sort of add their amen to Zedekiah's message. And all the prophets prophesied so, saying, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and prosper, for the LORD, all capital letters, shall deliver it into the king's hand. Oh, you would like to think, wouldn't you, that the court of Ahab had been won over and that Baal worship had been purged and replaced with the worship and service of Jehovah. He's the one being referenced now. But before you come too quickly to that conclusion, notice how King Jehoshaphat doesn't exactly read the situation that way. If he did read it that way, there would have been no need for him to make the request that he made back in verse 7. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord besides that we may inquire of him? It made me wonder at first if perhaps those 400 prophets changed their tune after King Jehoshaphat's request and began to use the name of Jehovah in verses 11 and 12. Or it could be, as one commentator suggests, that these prophets and the court of Ahab 
We're following now the religion of Jeroboam, the king that had led the revolt away from the southern kingdom years earlier and had established the northern tribe's kingdom by erecting two golden calves strategically placed so that the subjects of the kingdom wouldn't have to make the trips to Jerusalem that the Mosaic law called for. He introduced to the land, to the northern tribes, a form of idolatry from which the land never recovered. Now we are told of Ahab way back in 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 30, that Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass as it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. It would seem then, wouldn't it, that we find Ahab first walking in the idolatry of Jeroboam, then degenerating even further into Baal worship, thanks to the influence of his wicked consort Jezebel. And now, in chapter 22, it would seem that we find him back to the idolatry of Jeroboam again. So however the name of Jehovah was being used by these prophets that were gathered together around Ahab, it was apparent to King Jehoshaphat that there was still a substantial difference between them and a true prophet of the Lord. Jehoshaphat could see the difference. This interpretation makes sense when you read back in 1 Kings chapter 12 of what Jeroboam actually did to establish the religion of the northern tribes. Listen to what it says in 1 Kings chapter 12. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel, and the other put he in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one even unto Dan. And he made an house of high places, and he made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. That's in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 28 to 31. And verse 33 in that chapter tells us that this whole system of religion was something that Jeroboam had devised in his own heart. Rather interesting to note, isn't it, that when it came to Jeroboam establishing this form of idolatry, that he made religion something convenient for the people. It's too far for you to go all the way to Jerusalem. Oh, I'm going to make your religion much more convenient than that. You can worship the Lord through the use of these calves that I've erected, one in Dan, one in Bethel. And so very often false religion is convenient religion. Something to keep in mind as you're exercising 
discernment about religions today. Now, the picture becomes clear, I think, in chapter 22, that Ahab has surrounded himself with prophets that more or less had become his yes-men. And nobody could see that more plainly than King Jehoshaphat, which, as I say, makes his actions all the more astonishing. The thing I want you to see from the passage, however, is that false prophets have always been on the scene all the way back into ancient days, and the same thing continues to be true right up to this present hour. False prophets. Christ warned his disciples that this would be the case. So in Matthew 7 and verse 15, Christ says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. This warning follows right after Christ says, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that uh, go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. It's Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, and it is right on the heels of that admonition that he warns them to beware of false prophets. Peter gives us the same warning in his second epistle. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. That's Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 1. John also, in his first epistle, exhorts his readers, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. That's 1 John 4 and verse 1. And of course, the passage we read earlier today, our scripture reading taken from 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul basically warns of the same thing. No wonder Satan himself is able to appear as an angel of light. Small wonder that his uh, emissaries would do the same thing. Paul described these false prophets to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5, uh, he describes them as traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. They deny the power by denying the person of Christ, and they deny the power by denying the cross work of Christ, and they deny the power by denying the truth of justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. False prophets. Let's not suppose, brothers and sisters, that they're not to be found in our day, uh, in, in this day of easy believism in American Christianity. Interesting to note the year 2023. 
There's a book that's being republished, I think, uh, by Ligonier Ministries. It's a book that was written by J. Gresham Machen that was originally printed 100 years ago, 1923. It's entitled Christianity and Liberalism. I highly recommend it. I've been reading it again myself. Machen was one of the leaders in the war against modernism, one of the key figures in what is sometimes branded as the fundamentalist liberal controversy. He would eventually leave Princeton Seminary to establish a new seminary that would represent a return to biblical orthodoxy, And in his book, he demonstrates very plainly that liberalism is not merely a different kind of Christianity, but that it is not Christianity at all. That's the thrust of his book. Don't mistake it for a different form of Christianity. It's not Christianity. And he devotes an entire book to demonstrate that proposition. It's a different religion altogether. And the best way to fortify yourselves against every subtle form of religion that attaches itself to Christianity is to be grounded in the truth of the gospel. Know your Bible. Know the truth of the Bible as it's taught in your catechisms, especially the larger and the shorter catechisms. Make sure you and your children are grounded in the truth of Christ, who he is, what he's accomplished in his life and in his atoning death. Oh, how applicable are the words of our text to what is going on all around us today. Hearken, O people, every one of you. Hearken to the reality of false prophets that are in the world around you the potential damage they may do to professing Christians is beyond calculation. And we see evidence of that in the way some Christians have basically their lives wrecked and their testimonies destroyed thanks to the influence of false forms of Christianity that profess to do good and have great appeal to them initially, and eventually are revealed to be anything but true. But let's move on to consider next something more that we must hearken to in our day. We're to hearken to the danger of going with the flow. Hearken to the danger of going with the flow. We read in verse 9, Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, Hasten hither, Micaiah, the son of Imlah. A few verses later, we read of what took place between the messenger of the king and Micaiah. And the messenger that was gone to call Micaiah spake unto him, saying, Behold now, the words of the prophets declare good unto the king with one mouth. Let thy word, I pray thee, be like the word of one of them, and speak that which is good. That's a common message, you know, that is heard everywhere, even today. The message is simply this. Go with the flow. Don't rock the boat. 
Nobody likes a person who creates friction. Such people are viewed as rude and obnoxious. That was certainly the case with J. Gresham Machen, the man I mentioned a moment ago. When Martin Luther first started preaching the truth of justification by faith, the first response of the Church of Rome was to accuse him of being a novice. Nobody believes that. They said to him, You are way out of line. You're introducing an innovation. You should be going with the flow of things that has been in place for hundreds of years. And you know what? They were right. Justification had been buried for hundreds of years, thousands even. The world was engulfed in darkness, and it's with good reason that that period in history is referred to as the Dark Ages. And along comes Luther and goes against the grain by being biblical. His answer to his critics that basically told him he should go with the flow was to explain to them that even though the doctrine, even though the truth of the gospel and the truth of justification by faith had been buried for a very long time, it was nevertheless the truth of what Christ and his apostles taught. It wasn't a brand new innovation that Luther had crafted himself and brought to the scene. No, it was a return to something. It wasn't a new invention. It was the truth of God's word. Life would have been so much easier for Luther had he simply gone with the flow and not rocked the boat. Ironically, and James Buchanan brings this point out, brilliantly in his book on justification. Some ten years later, when the truth of what Luther was preaching had just about swept the entire continent of Europe into the kingdom of God, the Church of Rome would change its tune and say, this is what we believed the whole time. And uh, my how crafty are the ways of the devil. The dangers Luther would encounter and the flames of persecution that would be the portion of those that dared to defy Rome would be extensive. And there's a sense in which we stand on the shoulders of those like Micaiah in our text and who, like Luther and others in history, didn't go with the flow in spite of the pressure to do so. Today that pressure is being placed on many Christians and on many Christian institutions. Go with the flow, the flow that's being imposed on you by an ungodly culture. Go with the flow of same-sex marriage. After all, the highest court in our land has somehow determined that it's constitutional. What higher authority could you possibly resort to than a group of lost sinners who say that it's okay? And go with the flow of those who want to pretend they're of a different gender than the gender God created them to be. 
If they want to pretend, then you are legally bound to pretend along with them. I mean to tell you, the matter would be laughable until you read of those who lose their jobs and lose their licenses needed for their businesses or lose their ministries to adopt children and care for children or care for abused women. No, if you won't go with the flow of ministering to pretend women too, then we just assume you don't even exist to do any good for anyone. Go with the flow. I realize, of course, there's an ironic contrast to this modern-day pressure to go with the flow, and the irony is this, the imposers of these new forms of morality are the ones that are bucking the recognized practices of thousands of years across every religion. They would have us believe that in this new postmodern and post-Christian age of enlightenment, they're the ones that are able to say and dictate to the rest of us what's right and what's wrong. Go with the flow of worldliness, we're told. Well, that's nothing new. We've seen in our Sunday school that we've been going through John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. What were Christian and faithful pressured to do when they ventured through Vanity Fair? They were pressured to buy, 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 buy. The word rung in their ears. And they were pressured to conform to the world in their manners and in their appearance. Go with the flow, they were told in essence. And it was their nonconformity that led to faithful's trial and martyrdom. John Bunyan certainly knew what he was talking about in that chapter. The man himself wrote what would become an all-time classic while he languished in prison for his own failure to go with the flow. Well, our criteria, brothers and sisters in Christ, for doing what we do should never be based on what's popular or what's deemed to be unpopular. In other words, we don't adopt practices that go against the flow just because they go against the flow. No, when Micaiah was told to be like the word of those who spoke good to the king, he didn't reply that he was going to be different just for the sake of being different. No, rather, he said in verse 14, As the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. Had the Lord spoken to him in such a way as to commend King Ahab for his planned military campaign, Micaiah would have spoken that word. The key then, brothers and sisters, is to know the mind and will of God, and the way we know God's mind is to know God's word. Hearken then, O people, every one of you. Hearken to the truth of God and not to the trends of man. And then finally, one more application we can draw from Micaiah's exhortation. We're to, the, we're to hearken to the danger of ecumenical alliances. 
Hearken to the danger of ecumenical alliances. I must say, in addressing this point, I feel so much free Presbyterianism in me now because this in large measure is what our denomination has stood for and stood on. Of all the characters in this 22nd chapter of 1 Kings, like I've said, I've said it twice, I say it again, I find the most astonishing character to be King Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. In one sense, I suppose his desires were laudable. He certainly recognized a common ancient heritage with the tribes of the north. They had all been slaves in Egypt. They had all been delivered from Egyptian bondage when the Lord brought them out with a strong hand and a stretched out arm. They had all done their part in conquering the promised land, and back in the days of King Solomon, they had all been united as one nation. But the tribes of the north had apostatized. They had invented their own ways of worship and service to the Lord. They had become pragmatists who lost any jealousy for the Lord's honor that they may have had in earlier days. King Jehoshaphat would have known this, and he could certainly see it for himself when he went to Ahab to join himself with him. He recognized that the prophets that Ahab surrounded himself with were not true prophets of the Lord. They were false prophets, appointed, no doubt, in order to tell King Ahab whatever he wanted to hear. Jehoshaphat had the discernment to recognize that and to call for a true prophet of the Lord. And he got one. Micaiah was summoned, and Micaiah spake in the name of the Lord. Why in the world would Jehoshaphat, of all who were there in the presence of Ahab that day, go along with Ahab's military venture, in spite of what he had seen and heard in the gate of Samaria that day? Well, I say he's utterly astonishing. And it nearly cost him his life when 32 of the king of Syria's captains mistook him for Ahab and turned aside to fight with him exclusively. We read in verse 32 how he cried out, and fortunately for him, those Syrian captains perceived that he was not the king of Israel, so they turned back from pursuing him. Verse 33. The real damage to the southern kingdom would come later when the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel would marry into the house of David and would nearly succeed in extinguishing the whole Davidic line. You're familiar, if you know your Old Testament history, with the wicked queen Athaliah, daughter of Jezebel, once her husband was killed in battle, She took it upon herself to attempt to extinguish the whole Davidic line so that she herself could rule in their place. Fortunately, one young boy had been stolen away and hidden from her who escaped her evil scheme. Had she succeeded in that murderous plot, she would have succeeded in killing God's whole plan of redemption. 
for Christ was to come through the line of David. Though in one sense she never would have succeeded, but from a human perspective she sure came close. As free Presbyterians, we, we take a separatist stance. We're wary of ecumenical alliances because we've seen the damage that they've done in our own generation through the ecumenical alliances, especially of the late Billy Graham. What an enigma that man is. He preached to millions. I have no doubt that he saw, that, that he saw many souls saved. I would not take that from him. I would not deny that. But by the same token, I think that he was a lot like King Jehoshaphat. He wanted to give Christian recognition where it should never have been given. That was his fault. So he would have rank apostates on his platform sponsoring his crusades. Men who denied the virgin birth of Christ. Men who denied the blood atonement of Christ men who denied the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. He didn't see them the way Machen saw them, as being followers of an altogether different religion. He accepted them as brothers in Christ. He gave Christian recognition where he shouldn't have given it. And the damage done by his ecumenical campaigns, I believe, largely accounts for the sorry state of Christianity today in our nation and beyond. Did the famous evangelist not know? Did he have no knowledge of theology or of history? Was he unaware of the anathemas that the Church of Rome pronounced on all those that follow the gospel of grace? One can only marvel at the likes of King Jehoshaphat or the evangelist Billy Graham. Sort of make me, makes me think it's time to show that DVD that David DeCanio created a number of years ago, a documentary on ecumenism and on the history of the free church. One scene in particular that stands out in that documentary is when he's interviewing, and I forget the man's name, he was the chief editor at World Magazine for a while. He was also, may still be, a pastor in the PCA. He was the moderator of the entire PCA denomination at that time. And David DeCanio is interviewing him uh, about something that took place in Europe when a PCA brass choir was invited to perform and did perform in a Roman Catholic Mass. Why are you giving Christian recognition to what our forefathers clearly branded as a form of blasphemous heresy? And this man defended the action to David DeCanio. In our marvel about these things, let's make sure that we hearken to the warning of Micaiah. Hearken, O people, every one of you. 
Hearken to the reality of false prophets. Hearken to the danger of simply going with the flow. Hearken to the danger of the kind of ecumenical alliances that blur the distinctions between truth and error. May the Lord indeed hearken to us and give us the needed discernment and courage to contend for the truth and to be, as our motto states it, based on Romans chapter 1, separated unto the gospel. Let's close then in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we do pray, O Lord, that thou wilt help us to be discerning. We live in such a sentimental time, O Lord, when all that's needed for a religion to be legitimate is sincerity on the parts of those who follow it. And if we take them to be sincere, we take them to be truthful. Oh, Lord, may we never forget that there is such a thing as being sincerely deluded. And may we, oh, Lord, lovingly but firmly be contenders for the truth and propagators of the truth. We pray, oh, Lord, that thou wilt indeed open our eyes, give us discernment, and help us, oh, Lord, to wage effective warfare, being governed by the truth and the love of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.